Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start in the back on world oil supply demand because it's on everyone's minds with the uh, situation in Gaza. A couple of points on this Exhibit C. One, Iran at almost 3 million barrels a day is probably at capacity. So people dispute our freeing $6 billion that was in Korean banks or moving, the, moving that money to banks in gutter. Not, you know, not to be turned over to the Iranian government, but be used as directed by the Iranian government for, you know, for medical supplies and things like that. That's peanuts. I mean, three million barrels a day is a heck of a lot of cash flow. I think the reserves of Iran have gone from, the central bank reserves have gone from 10 billion to 70 billion in the last several months. So by not being tougher, I think during the Trump administration, that Iranian production was way under a million barrels a day, or certainly the exports, I think, had been down to 400,000 barrels a day. Now, Iran has 70 million people, so they lose, use a fair amount of their oil internally. So that commentary on oil. The other thing is that Saudi Arabia, at 9 million barrels, they can produce 11 or 11 and a half million barrels in fairly short order. So... They were holding two million barrels. They're they're holding at least two million barrels a day off the market before Hamas, you know, had that horrible Saturday, you know, killing civilians and whatnot. Saudi Arabia, the United States, and Israel were negotiating a three-way agreement where Saudi Arabia was going to recognize Israel. The U.S. was going to expedite Saudi Arabia developing their own uranium enrichment so they could kind of pull even with the Iranians. And the Saudis were going to turn most of that 2 million barrels a day into the market, which would have produced lower prices. How much lower? Maybe $60, $70, rather than $90. And then that Saturday happened. Now we don't know where we stand. Would have said before that hospital explosion, that maybe this could be managed, but it doesn't matter who's responsible for 500 people losing their lives in that hospital being blown up, uh, whether it was a uh, Hamas missile or an Israeli airstrike, I think it changed the dynamic so that it's just going to be very hard to put that Saudi agreement back on its place. That being said, how high could oil get the supply-demand balance with Saudi holding 2 million barrels out and the rest of OPEC, primarily Abu Dhabi holding you know, another million barrels out, supply-demand balance is not good. So it's just something we have to watch. Natural gas, uh, which is Exhibit B, 
if you look down at the bottom, 10, 12, 23 price, the 25 price inexplicably went from $4 to $4.48. You hardly ever see something like that happen. I mean, this is these are strip prices out two years, 25 strip price. I've been asking, I've been scanning all the publications that we go through. There's no explanation for it. The only thing close to an explanation I've heard is when the event in Gaza happened, Saudi Arabia shut in one of its producing gas fields, so they'll need more LNG. Also, that producing gas field, some like gas, goes to Egypt into LNG trains. The Egyptians don't have enough gas to fill their LNG trains, and that LNG goes on to Europe. So the balancing price, the TTF price, went up a lot. Could be some trader decided to put a trade in where they bought the strip and then sold sold into the European market. You know, I mean, that's the only explanation I've heard. And and the person making that prognostication wasn't wasn't really that confident about it. It was just you know kind of a maybe explanation. Exhibit A. We don't have a House Speaker after the middle of November. We don't have a continuing resolution. The whole issue is about spending and. I know I say it just about every week, but the 2019 pricing away from defense and the automatics like Social Security and Medicare was $900 billion. And this year, it's a trillion four. At $500 million is means we have a trillion and a half deficit rather than a trillion dollar deficit. And the Biden administration has no plan whatsoever to deal with that. And I would say the main issue amongst the uh, Republican House members is they want to take it back, a lot back. And Kevin McCarthy, when he got the debt ceiling, he seemed to have agreed with the Biden administration and not take a strong stance on that. So maybe it was misunderstanding with the other House members, maybe it wasn't, but that seemed to be the major issue that it caused them not to get enough votes to remain a speaker. If Kim Jordan can't do it, maybe maybe the conference reverts back to McCarthy, who knows? But obviously something has to give there. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Topmark Capital. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So... If you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager who truly understands the dynamics of the market, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. Next thing we'd like to do is turn all the way to page one, which is Apple Alphabet and Tesla. I think before we go any further, just see from Mike and Jason the significant news on these three. They're on page one for a reason. I mean, these are very strong companies with pretty good business outlooks. And Jason, do you see any, I mean, granted, less take up in China, the uh, iPhone amongst Chinese consumers. But other than that, do you see any chinks in the Apple armor? No, that 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 was the one I was going to bring up. And it's kind of unclear to me if that's just a Chinese economy weakening or if there's a shift in sentiment to not buy American products. 
So I think, I think that question is still unanswered in my mind. Right. Right. And then Michael is the expert on the litigation. Guilty by association. Yeah, he knows an expert. Uh, <laughs> a, a fair guess for the amount of money that Google or Alphabet pays to Apple. It's north of $10 billion. I, I think if the three of us were trying to guess based on discussions amongst ourselves and reading stuff, probably say it's probably more likely to be $20 billion, closer to $20 billion than $10 billion. And the free cash flow in Apple is $86 billion. So theoretically, if the result of that court case was Google can no longer pay to be the default search engine on every iPhone, that, that $86 billion could have quite a ding in it. You'd be at 60 times free cash flow in that case. Yeah, yeah. Now, Mike's not qualified. Uh, even though he's married to a litigator, he's <laughs> litigation, but clearly something's likely to give there, I think. Don't you think, Mike? Yeah, I do think that there'll be more transparency in that negotiation, or Apple will decide to do it on their own. Right. I think Apple's probably more concerned with public perception than they are with, because the, the business option, I'll hold fast to this, that, Google was paying Apple just enough to keep Apple out of the business. Right. So there's probably an opportunity for Apple to do, do that, yeah. that as well. Yeah. Jason, any other Alphabet or Google chinks in the armor or possible found money like not having to send $20 billion to Apple? Well, the only interesting thing I... I had seen as the investigators came up with a number of 50% of uh, Google searches are attributable to the, to the paid default browser search tool. And, and I think they're being pretty generous with that. I think if, if you're a Google user and it just happens to be the default, you know, that's, you're not going to change the default. But if you look at the ones where you have to opt in and like selecting the, the website you go to for search on desktop, you know, Google still has, has the wide vast majority of searches. So you think they underestimate how many people would otherwise switch? Yeah, by saying 50% yeah. are just using the default and then yeah. they might otherwise make a decision. But right. I would say 45% of that 50 is likes Google as their default. Right, right. Tesla margins with reduced pricing, Jason's, the extent you reduce price and you keep your volumes up, presumably that helps your margin. But it's, it's got to come down, don't you think, as pricing comes down? Mike was saying this morning that that even without the uh, credit, a Model 3 in California is getting down to the price of a Corolla. It is, yeah. I mean, their margins are obviously going to come down. Uh, earnings are tonight, right? And yeah. I think that their internal target is 10% operating margin. It's, right. I don't think any analysts are really thinking they'll hit 10% operating margin. The estimates that I saw were around like 6.5%. So you know, turn on Bloomberg after uh, the close today, and you'll find out where they landed. Right, and then you know, where they guide for next quarter will be interesting as well since they've upgraded the plant about a month ago. So... You know, how, how much more efficient do they make their process there? Right. Do you think, like, like Ford, do you think their margin on the trucks will be more than their margin on the Model 3 or the, or the Y? 
probably not initially. They'll have to shake out the production issues, I would think. That's kind of what I assume too. I, it, they've, they're trying a lot of new things with the truck uh, that, that rolled aluminum exoskeleton, you know, that's a, I think that's a first. But the, part of the reason they're doing all that is that at scale, it's cheaper to manufacture. Mm-hmm. So right. absolutely right that in low volume production, there'll be so much depreciation expense associated with it that, it, you know, they'll be quote unquote unprofitable. We're not expecting scale production until next year, probably well into next year. So we will only know then. I, I do think trucks tend to be higher margin. And given the fact that every other truck on the market is, you know, 50 plus thousand dollars, Tesla's in a pretty good position to capture more margin in trucks. Now, they, they right. did design a, a pretty crazy looking truck. So will the demand be there? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Moving to page two, chinks in the Microsoft armor. I mean, I think to run the large language models is pretty expensive. So even if they get a lot of people signing up for uh, Copilot, it, it may not add much to their cash flow. Or how does that look to you, Jason? Yeah, th- so the Wall Street Journal reported that they believe they're losing $20 per user on, on the current Copilot, which is a, a tool that helps engineers write software. And they charge $10 a month for that. So presumably it costs them $30 a user to run that. And what we've been thinking is, and, and since that uh, article came out, the VP of product at Microsoft has said, that's not true any longer. They're, they're turning a profit with Copilot. We think that they've greatly optimized the algorithms that are generating the the code suggestions for for these software engineers and they've optimized the algorithm to the point where it's you know several factors more efficient than it was so the wall street journal was probably using old data to make to make that assumption and if they're not losing money at you know selling it at ten dollars a user then when they roll out the next version of copilot for office and they charge thirty dollars a user presumably they're making pretty good margin there Right. Mike, anything plus or minus on Microsoft? No, I mean, I, I still think you, you look at it and you say 40 times free cash flow, that's expensive. It's, it, again, you do the math again, at, instead of at 60 billion in free cash flow at 90, then uh, it starts to look pretty reasonable. So go from 40 to 25 times free cash flow. Right. For a company that's got, you know, Notably, just signed a, a billion-dollar deal with Amazon as a customer. Um, obviously, that's just for their you know, office suite for Amazon's employees. But even competitors would be competitors are forced to buy from Microsoft. Uh, it, there's no, no nicer business mode than that. Yeah. Salesforce is pretty sticky, too. Jason are a little chagrined because... They kind of turned on Salesforce and then it went up. But um, Jason, how, did, how does it look to you at the $200 range? It's kind of yeah. expensive. It is. It is. And, and we've kind of were doubting uh, Mark Benioff about a year ago and maybe shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> he has his goal to reach $50 billion in sales. 
I f- maybe that's in 18 months now, I think that his time frame on that was, and they're at 34 now. So it's a pretty big lift in sales. Um, and so. honestly, generative AI fell in their lap. I mean, yeah, there's no lower hanging fruit than, and this is our mistake in not recognizing this. We, we were definitely wrapped around the axle on the bloated staff at Salesforce and how they had overhired, failed to generate margin, and weren't even projecting to really have a decent operating margin once you factored in share-based compensation. So we, we got a little over-indexed on that and missed on the fact that generative AI is probably the easiest thing to sell into is a sales organization. So Salesforce will be firing on all cylinders when it comes to that. I, I don't think they've made the cuts that they could, but unlike Twitter, for example, who had to let go of 80 or 90% of their staff, Salesforce doesn't really have to. So I think Benioff taking the reins back from Brett Taylor has been probably a step in the right direction. You get the founder back involved, back into the day-to-day, and running the business the way it should be. It's, it's expensive today, and were it cheap, again, maybe we'd get interested. Right. Jason Snowflake, vulnerable at all here, do you think, with the large language models, or are they well-positioned, do you think? I think there is a vulnerability, but maybe too hard to, too early to, to call. And the, and the way it would come about is you're going to use an AI tool to optimize your queries into the Snowflake database. And since they're consumption-based on their, on their pricing, the less queries you do to the database, the lower your cost is. So if you can optimize how you're asking questions to, to the Snowflake system, you'll need to run less queries and then your bill will be lower. And, the, and they've seen some customers implement this. So right. it's, it is a risk, but longer term, you're enabling more users to ask more questions of your data. So I think long term, it's, it makes the system much more usable for the average you know, business analyst at, at, the, at a company. So I could see it be a benefit as, as there's more, you know, less sophisticated, if you will, users that can now use the Snowflake system. All right. It, it comes down to pricing model, right? And every pricing model has different incentives. Um, the consumption model, interestingly, seems to be very cyclical because when sales are up, they're not worried about how much money they're spending on compute their customers but when sales are down they're obviously worried about spending on compute and now that's exactly what we're seeing is optimization of that spend so where a per seat license might seem like an appealing alternative it reduces like jason said the number of users that could potentially access a platform so it's a trade-off there and we still kind of like the consumption model better, but we're learning some of its advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're not shying away from that, and, and a lot of the best businesses, they they like to give the advantages to the customer. You look at Costco and Amazon, and and it seems like Snowflake's doing the same. So they they keep making their system more efficient, even outside of these query optimization tools. They've they've made their system more efficient that your data analysis happens faster and thus presents you a lower cost. So, you know, I, th- I think they're going to they'll have a lot of brand loyalty there. Right. Oracle, Jason, has a lot of debt compared to 
the other companies on this page, and that's from acquisition. But right. I think you believe their acquisitions have been pretty well thought out. I did think that. It didn't seem like it went as smoothly with Cerner, so they haven't seen the growth there. And it's just, it's not, it's not playing out like I, I thought it may. I'm Yet. Yeah. It may still be coming. I, I, I keep caveating this because hospitals are so swamped with decisions. The concept of implementing, upgrading, or switching medical record systems was kind of off the table. So if that's an 18-month sales process, and maybe that process really only restarted six months ago, nine months ago, then maybe we don't have many indications yet. Yeah. And Oracle certainly has expertise to bring you know, some of these AI tools in, into the EMR. Um, so maybe that's a, maybe that is a, a driver in the future. Yeah. I'd like to buy it cheaper if it were available. Right. Speaking of cheaper, uh, the next page, if we start over on the right-hand side, ASML seems to have caught a cold relative to their order book was foreseeable because their order book, they were sold out for like a couple of years. But how how does it look to the two of you now? Yeah, so they, they announced earnings and had their earnings call this morning. So they recorded the lowest net bookings that they have since, aside from March of 2020, the lowest previously was in 2019. So everybody sort of panicking a little bit, saying, well, maybe the demand's not there. Now, they're still in a situation where they have a 12-month lead time on new orders. So right. they, they still have a pretty healthy book. They have some export restrictions stuff to deal with. Certain things aren't being sold into China. That's been well sort of established. And per the CEO comments, there's plenty of legacy or trailing edge demand for their products. There's parts of their forecast that are probably highly optimistic though. And those things will only, you know, only time will tell as to, you know, there's no question about the long-term trend of more semiconductors and everything. They are pretty much the only lithography game in town, but given the fact that their equipment is so expensive they do actually have some competition and that really boils down to the architecture of a particular product. So if it makes sense for Taiwan Semiconductor or Intel or even some of the chip designers to design a chip in a different way so that it utilizes less, especially EUV because that's extremely expensive, they're going to do that because it's going to save money. So it is interesting where well, ASML has a strong monopoly, there are other ways to design, not necessarily around, but to reduce the utilization of the product. Now, then you have to ask yourself, where does that lead in the future? It probably just leads to ASML raising their prices so long as there's nobody else that can do it. So, for example, if under one architecture there's 10 passes of EUV and another architecture there's 15, well, logically... ASML might need to raise their price by 25% or something. So you end up having rationale and opportunity to raise price. All right. Export restrictions, we've got to mention NVIDIA. They, they don't seem to 
be too concerned about it, but I guess the supply-demand balance for the GPUs they make is there's so little supply and so much demand that it would make a difference now. How, Jason, what do you think You know, next year or the year after? Yeah, we were just talking about this, and, and like you said, right, the supply and demand is, is so out of whack right now. If, if they are unable to sell the, the supply of chips they built for China into that country, then people here are going to just gobble them up. They'll, they'll find customers, you know, in the rest of the world. So for the next year, I, I agree that they, they probably won't see an impact and then they'll probably design a new chip around the current restrictions and, and recover those sales again. But the new restrictions to me are just odd, right? This, it's a chip that's been on the market for a year and now we're, we're looking in the rear view mirror saying, oh man, shoot, we shouldn't have let, let that one be for sale instead of looking forward, right? Because that chip is, is going to be obsolete next year and we're restricting it now. You know, it's just, just back, backwards thinking. We close today with a discussion I could have, I had this morning that Jason's really kind of an expert on. I asked Mike, I said, are these chips going to find their way to being, being used uh, by Chinese military? You know, presumably that's the reason we're having these restrictions. If so, how much of a market is the U.S. military for these advanced GPU chips? And Mike said, probably hardly at all for the U.S. military because it takes them so long to include this kind of stuff in, in, in their government contracting. Is, is, that a, is that a fair assessment of government defense contracting in the U.S. taking a long time to use the latest GPUs or CPUs or what have you? In general, absolutely. There's going to be a pocket to the government that are on the cutting edge and they're, they're doing the advanced research, but that's going to be such a small segment of the government, of the defense spending, that you, know, you, you can probably ignore it. They, they do. They, it takes them months to design and, and procure these computer systems. And then once they do, they need spares. So they'll need production to last for years into the future, longer than one of these companies or one of these fabs would like to be producing that semiconductor. So you end up paying two, three times as much for the chip that is, you know, five years obsolete um, just to have, have spares ready. Right. So yeah, what, what they're buying now is probably what was invented in 2020. All right. So then my next question was, again, for, I guess we addressed this to Mike, SpaceX seems to have stolen a march on Boeing and Lockheed and whatnot in terms of rockets and servicing the space shuttle and whatnot by taking a different strategy and employing different kinds of people and maybe giving their engineers more more standing and, and influence and whatnot. Can that happen with, may not be able to happen with jet planes, but I mean, can that happen with drones or, or how... How, how could you move U.S. defense industry into um, trying to move faster to take advantage of the latest capability and uh, chips or computing? The big change that SpaceX did was fixed-price contracts. So, Jason, it'll be good to get your perspective on this, but I, I mentioned two companies that I think have made some level of change. One is Palantir, which has been around for a while, They've enhanced our data analysis capability from a 
federal government level pretty substantially. The second company, I also don't know whether they're doing fixed price contracts or not, is Andrill. They're building some drone technology. In particular, they would tell you, and this is a rough introduction, but essentially an operating system for communicating among various assets in a war field. And software is something that government contractors are notoriously bad at. So it's probably very good that these guys are tackling that challenge. Right. Yeah. I, I happen to be working in, in, in U.S. intelligence when uh, Palantir was trying to break in. And they definitely took a, a much different approach, right? They developed, they analyzed the need that the government had, developed the product on their own dime, um, and then tried to sell them the most appropriate solution. And there was a ton of pushback. And it was mainly around defense contractors wanting to, you know, they signed these big contracts to do the discovery, prototyping, and then development of these systems. And they end up with these long contracts that are bloated in a, in a product that's kind of, you know, mostly there, but it's, it's taking a much more commercial productized approach to the government. And that's what Andrew is doing too with hardware. And I think that'll really push things forward. I think that, that's the direction our government should be going. And just to close, Andrew's a private company, I guess, one to watch out for. Next week, we'll start on four, five, and six. And in the meantime, everyone stay healthy and be well. And uh, we'll talk next week. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.